I'm Bill Treby, and the reason I'm up here, as I think Kurt alluded to, is that the pastoral staff is at the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference in Gaithersburg, Maryland, being stoked up and loaded with ammunition to come back and wage good warfare in the pastoral ministry of this church. So we pray they will get full armaments to then equip us. Um, I think all the announcements were made. This is Covenant Group Week. Please take advantage of that. I thank Phil and Bill Widener. I don't know if he even introduced himself. I guess, Phil, you thought everyone knew you. Oh, okay. <laughs> David Widener, his son, who gave us the announcements, and Kurt Roberts, who assisted in receiving the offering. I want to thank all the servants who have stepped up to serve as they do week after week as ushers, children's church workers, prayer warriors, sound technicians, musicians, cleanup teams, Beacon of Hope volunteers, covenant group leaders, alpha waiters, setup artists for the alpha, and many others whose category of service I've not named. I want to say also how blessed that we are to say that Lakeview Christian Center, in my estimation, is blessed with the best pastoral and administrative staff that I know about anywhere. Amen. They serve us incredibly well. And for the past 19 and a half months, they've served us under very difficult and transient circumstances. We have much to be grateful for to God for providing for us able, gifted, talented, godly, and giving servants who bless us week after week in amazing ways, month after month. There's some remarkable facts, and I just want to take this time to to share this. Many of you know this, but there may be some here who do not, and it's some, it's some facts about our pastoral team that I share with friends around the country, ministers and lay people, facts that never cease to amaze folk when I tell them who are familiar with church life. First of all, our pastoral team entirely, I mean, you could possibly make one exception that I'll mention, but our pastoral team came out of this local church. They did not come to us from the normal church channels. Keith Collins, our senior pastor, came to the church as a brand new born-again believer when he was 18 years old or about 18 years old. Peter Davidson, our much-loved old man, our senior pastor, (laughs) who is not senior pastor, was a young college graduate teacher who was drawn to the claims of Christ through the testimony of a janitor who was a member of this church. Peter was then baptized in the baptistry of Lakeview Christian Center and then went on to become the owner of a successful local printing business, becoming a, became a member of this church in the mid-70s, then sold his successful business in the late 80s to become a full-time pastor. Jeff Earhart, our pastor who serves us by leading our youth and children's ministries, came to this church with his mother when he was about six years old. And never left except for his college education. Came back from a Bible college experience. He was planning to go back the next year. Became a summer intern and then came on to the pastoral staff and finished his 
seminary education at the Baptist Seminary. Matt Mason, who maybe could be called an exception, but I won't really, I don't really think so. He's our pastor in charge of the music ministry, the pivot ministry, and much more, much, much more. Grew up as a pastor's son in a church two blocks from Lakeview Christian Center. Participated as a young man in the life of this church. And after attending school and working in Texas, Matt and Paula came back here and became members of the church several years before coming on to the staff of the church full time. That's an amazing story, if you don't know, know that, about a pastoral staff of a church. We're blessed. Our administrative staff, and I won't go through all the names, is made up of people whose first function was as faithful members of this congregation. The best staff money can't buy. I stole that phrase from another group that I was associated with. Their stories are similarly faith-building. So we are blessed. And I want to also take a minute to acknowledge that you, the members and people who attend this church in this particular season in the life of Lakeview Christian Center, are those who have shown yourselves faithful in many ways, not the least of which is your faithful and generous commitment of financial resources in challenging and amazing ways as God has given faith for you to give. As of Tuesday this past week, in response to prayer and presentation of the need, 211 people have signed new pledge cards committing to give toward bridging the gap between the cost of building our new church facilities and our resources as follows, as of Tuesday. $662,000 in one-time gifts within the next 30 days. And really, in my mind, more than that, $51,000 in in monthly pledges of support for the building. That's amazing. All this over and above extremely generous tithing and general fund giving that exceeds the monthly gift. I tell people this again. I, I share these stories with friends that I talk to on the phone or meet when I'm out of town, and, and they can't. it's hard to believe. The giving of this church has doubled Put aside building giving. The, build, the giving of this church has at least exceeded by 50% monthly what it was before Katrina, despite the fact of losing 30 to 35% of our number. That is amazing. God has been faithful to inspire faith. And you have been faithful to listen and respond to God's grace in your lives by your generosity. And by the way, we received our building permit this week as well. All of that provides me with a natural transition to what God has laid on my heart to share with you this morning. And I want to begin by just, I like to read stories, so I will read the story. It's on your notes. Written by the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, which was called... The whole story was called Where God Is, Love Is. In a certain town, there lived a cobbler, Martin Avdeich by name. He lived in a small basement room whose one window looked out onto the street, and all he could see were the feet of people passing by. But since 
There was hardly a pair of boots that had not been in his hands at one time for repair. Martin recognized each person by his shoes. Day after day, he would work in his shop, watching boots pass by. One day, he found himself consumed with the hope of a dream that he would find the Lord's feet outside his window. Instead, he found a lingering pair of worn boots belonging to an old soldier. Though at first disappointed, Martin realized the old man might be hungry and invited him inside to a warm fire and some tea. He had other visitors that evening, and though sadly none were Christ, he let them in also. Sitting down at the end of day, Martin heard a voice whisper his name as he read the words, I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Inasmuch as you did for the least of these, you did unto me. This story of Tolstoy's was written as a Christmas story. Someone has said that the Christian journey is a journey of remembering and preparing. Christ came to us 2,000 years ago, and he is coming to us again. So we need to be about remembering and preparing. And that's what the letter to the Hebrews says to us in so many ways and many words. What I'm going to talk about today relates to something reminiscent to this story from the writer of Hebrews by the Holy Spirit. So if you would, please stand up with me and if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to our two texts or they're on your notes. But let's stand up as the word is read. First Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, and then Matthew 25, verses 20, 35 through 40. First, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who were in prison or in bonds, as though in prison or in bonds with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now let's read Matthew 25, verse 35 through 40. This was a parable that the Lord, just days before his death, told his disciples. And I've never ceased to be moved by reading the entire parable, but I'll just read part of it. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Father, please come by your Holy Spirit and speak to us. Lord, 
What feeble words I may give are meaningless compared to what your Holy Spirit wants to tell us through your word this morning. As we listen, Lord, may we hear you speak. May we hear your spirit inspire us. May we hear your words of grace empower us so that we might be the light on a hill that you've called us to be. So that we might be the lighthouse that is shown on the gospel in this city. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin to, um, and before we get to unpack these, this text, and I'm going to concentrate on Hebrews 13, and determine what they mean, as always, we need to let God's Holy Spirit speak to us about what He wants, to, wants us to do about what the Word means. It's great to understand what the Word means, but we need to... It's just as important, and it, in fact... Without this next step, the first step is useless. It's just as important that we hear what God would have us do about what the word means as it is that we understand what the word means. And to help us do this, I want you to consider the question and provide an answer to it. Perhaps you want to put that in your notes now or later. But consider the question that I wrote and write down the answer when you get one. The question is, where can I, as part of this local church, best satisfy these demands of Scripture that we're going to look at, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6? Where can I personalize it? Where can I, as part of this local church, best satisfy these demands of Scripture? I wouldn't be too hasty to put the answer down until we begin to unpack Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Before we begin considering these demands of our text, let's start out by remembering a couple of basic truths. First, remember the context of these demands in the first six verses of Hebrews 13, which those words mirror, I believe, the the parable that Christ taught his disciples just a few days before the cross that we read in Matthew 25. Hebrews has taught us and teaches us about God. And about what God through Christ has done to secure for us great and precious promises for our future. Hebrews tells us with direct commands like those in our text. And Hebrews tells us through living examples that we saw particularly in Hebrews chapter 11. What kind of lives we can live as we put faith in who God is and what God has done. The lives we are challenged to live will be based on faith in those promises that he has made to us in the first 12 chapters. This book is calling us to radical, practical, outrageous choices and acts of risk-taking love on the basis of God's promises and on the basis of who God is. Now, before going further, we need to acknowledge that living a Christian life if you haven't figured this out yet, is a supernatural undertaking. We cannot live the kind of lives God demands in our own abilities. That's not going to work. 
if we undertake to live and love others in the way that these demands we're going to look at this morning require, without coming to God first and asking for him to provide the strength, the work we do will not be Christian work. Writing to the church, the Apostle Peter wrote these words, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5 Spiritual is the opposite of being merely natural. Being spiritual, as that term is used in God's Word, means being inhabited and guided and empowered by the supernatural Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul distinguished between the natural person and a spiritual person. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, you can see that. Paul later in the, his letter to this church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, asked if they were being, and he used these words, merely human. I think many of us feel like we're merely human. No. If the Spirit of Christ is in you... You're not merely human. You need to acknowledge something about the truth, that the spirit of the living God dwells in you, inhabits you, takes up residence in you, and can empower you. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul tells the church, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? There is simply no way we can be the church without the experience of living with power that is not just our own. Now, this truth, I don't know how that strikes you, but for me, it does two things. It frees me from a couple of things. It should free me, and it does free me when I acknowledge it from pride. And it frees me from an unholy fear of failure. But rest assured, as we go to God and ask for his help and then trust him for the results, we can increasingly live out what we are called to live out. And when we fail, as we will, we have forgiveness. And we have an advocate. I love to think of Christ as an advocate. We have an advocate before the Father's throne pleading our case. So forgiveness is a done deal. It's assured. He's never lost. He's never lost a case. When we succeed, when we have moved in his power, not our own strength, there's no room for pride. John Piper put it this way. I think that it's in your notes, this quote. To be the church, we must live on God. It takes supernatural power to endure patiently in the kind of love that defines us as the church of Christ. It takes power that accords with divine glory to endure joyfully and patiently in love until we die. So we must seek to live on God. We must seek to experience supernatural power daily in order to be the church. One of the crucial steps in this direction is to be fully persuaded of this. Once we are persuaded that normal Christian living is supernatural, if we desire to be Christians, we will be on our knees in obedience to Jesus' command to pray that you may have strength. Luke 21:36. So we should have no fear of failure, since His grace is sufficient and His strength is limitless. These demands of God's grace are matched by His provision of strength. 
as we turn to him and trust him. Do you want some promises? I've listed some there. Look at Psalm 19, 7 through 11, Colossians 1:29, Philippians 4:13, and the others that are there. These passages describe Paul's experience or David's experience, but Paul and David were human beings just like you and me. And they were relying on God just as we are able to do. Take these examples, apply them, and there's nothing God calls you to do or that God convicts you, even this morning, to do by his word that you cannot do. With that principle settled that we need God, let's look at Hebrews 3, 13, 1 through 6. This passage describes what I've called faith's fruit or faith at work. This passage rests on the doctrinal foundation, the practical teaching, and the wonderful faith-filled um, examples that have been given to us in the first 12 chapters of Hebrews. This whole chapter, and these six verses in particular, particular provide us a, 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 just a natural closing for the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews. The doctrinal teaching that we have received in Hebrews has been accompanied, and the warnings have been given. And these opening words of chapter 13 provide some final words of application. One by one, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, touches on the kinds of behavior by Christians which will impress a secularized society like the Roman Empire in which these believers in the first century lived. And it will impress that secularized society with the value and the power of Christian truth. Then as now, Christians are being judged, not on their teachings, but on their lives. So then, what qualities of life will favorably influence those who see us, many of whom are turned off by the church, who know nothing or next to nothing about the Bible? Our text confronts the same kind of sin-filled, pluralistic world that we live in with these urgings and commands in these six verses that will work in any age, any age today included. As I was uh, before the Lord trying to think about what he would have me to say today, I don't know how these pastors do it every week, actually. Because I, I was warned about this opportunity maybe three or four weeks ago and began thinking, and they work hard. But as I was thinking about what the Lord would have me say today, I was reminded of the many prophetic words that this church has heard over a significant period of time, beginning, I don't know exactly how long before Katrina, but beginning well before Katrina, to the effect that God was letting us know that we were to be a lighthouse, a light on a hill, a witness to this city in a new, unique, and significant way. Hard to envision a hill in Lakeview. I guess that bridge over the 17th Street Canal would have to suffice. But then there will be all that fill that we're going to have to haul in. Maybe that will be a hill. But when we understand what this text calls for, we will understand 
I believe the way that this local church will be the light on a hill and the lighthouse for the gospel that those prophetic words call for. And we will understand that it has far more to do with how we supernaturally live than it has to do with a building. Verse 1. Brotherly love must continue. Four words. What is meant here, really although it would be awkward English, is brother love or sister love must continue. In other words, we are urged to live the kind of, live out our lives with the kind of love that, are, that would be demonstrated in an ideal family between brothers and sisters. Another way to say this is that this is not a love based on personal liking. Rather, it's a love based on shared relationship. Jesus taught us that the mark by which his true disciples would be known was the love they had for each other. John 13:35. All those who justifiably bear the name Christians are members one of another because they share the life of Christ. Real faith in Christ produces people who care for one another because they are brothers and sisters with the same elder brother, the same father, whether or not they naturally like each other. They are related in the first degree. This brother-sister love is supernatural, as I said earlier, but it's also practical. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 illustrates this truth and provides the foundation for this truth. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Read brothers and sisters there. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, when we look at the example of the early church in the book of Acts, we can see that church members knew each other and were known by one another so that they knew those in need and they saw to it that their basic needs for food, shelter, and clothing were met as well as their need, if you look at the book of Acts, at their needs for being discipled as mature believers. They knew each other and they were known by each other. This kind of love in action is faith in action. In our self-centered world, this kind of love, lived out, provides many watts for this light on the hill. The gospel magnifying lighthouse is illuminated by this kind of living. This kind of love is demonstrated or, or is explained by a Greek word in the New Testament, koinonia. It used to be one of our church models. It was on all our stationery. We have to move on. I'm not trying to go back, but it's a very important word. It's translated into the English by the word fellowship. Fellowship is a word that's common in Christian circles today, but it's sometimes misunderstood for just any warm human connection or interchange, particularly when we make connection with someone who's a Christian that we have some common interests with. If I share a cup of coffee with a brother and discuss the latest Saints game, 
Or if I found, find out that you are a New York Yankees fan like I am and engage in a discussion of how their overpaid pitching staff is failing to perform. <laughs> or we get into a, a discussion of our common views on the state of political leadership in this city or state or country. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is not koinonia, fellowship. True fellowship starts with a common fellowship with God. It is a uniquely Christian experience shared by those who have come to know the truth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One author has defined it this way, John Loftness. He wrote, fellowship with others begins with an honest, open, obedient relationship with God rooted in the truth of his word. How we share that relationship with others, how we wrestle with understanding truth and struggle to apply it to our lives is the essence of fellowship. So this brother love and sister love, the brotherly love that Hebrews tells us to continue in is to be expressed in fellowship that has one source and two channels. The one source is God. The two channels that we both have, both of these two channels need to be understood and worked out in accordance with Scripture. These two channels are the work of the Holy Spirit directly in our hearts and the work of the Holy Spirit through other believers in fellowship. I've heard some people borrow the phrase from the old misguided gospel song. I don't even know the name of the song. Pharaoh, you'd have to help me with this if you remember. Just Jesus and me. Uh, that was a phrase in a song. Very misguided, actually. Some here might be tempted to get off the bus that takes them to fellowship. Because relationships, even between believers, come in the same box with problems and hurt and misunderstandings. And particularly with inconvenience. In fact, I think that last thing, inconvenience, in our busy lives, tempts us to avoid true fellowship. It takes something from us that we consider very valuable, our time. Certainly the Bible teaches that God and his word are sufficient for all our needs relative to life and godliness. And you, if you listen to some Christians, you will say, that's all I need, just Jesus and me. The word, it's all I need for life and godliness. But let's not use that as an excuse to limit the means that God in his word, ordained by his word, might choose to use to help us apply truth to our lives. It's crystal clear in the word of God that our sanctification, that is the ongoing process of battling sin and becoming more like Jesus, is a what I'm going to call a one-another job. Our, sanctifica our sanctification, the ongoing progress in becoming like Christ, is one-another business. Now, I want to make sure we distinguish here, and I just felt like I needed to do this. Maybe, I've, Probably I'm, everybody here knows this, but I want to make, make it clear so that there can be no excuse. Make sure we distinguish between justification and sanctification. Just take a minute to do this. Justification is God's instantaneous legal act in which God thinks, and I'm really quoting this from, John, from Grudem, Wayne Grudem. 
God's instantaneous legal act in which God thinks of our sins as forgiven and thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Sanctification is about becoming more righteous, and it is a process that lasts as long as we live. If you're a child of God, born of the Spirit of God, you will never be more justified than you are right now. But by God's grace, you will become more and more sanctified, as you, more like Jesus, as you cooperate with God's Holy Spirit in the process of changing. I don't want to change. Then you don't want what God wants. God ordained that his children change, continually change. By God's grace, you're going to become more and more sanctified as you cooperate with him. But sanctification, however incomplete it is in each of those people God has justified, is definitely underway. It's underway. It's ongoing, but it's started and it's not optional. You here who have experienced salvation are being sanctified. I can say that with, with God's word to back me up. Because it is the work of the Holy Spirit by grace and it's ongoing. God has his means of doing this. And these means include as a necessary component one another. John Loftness has also compiled something he called, and I, it's the last sheet in your notes if you have your sermon notes. He called it the house rules for God's family. And you, um, I think you will find it to be eye-opening as to what our love for brothers and sisters in Christ might look like. I might call this the one another list. Uh, let's just look at it with, a minute with me. I'm not going to go over all of it, but let, we won't look at these scriptures. You can, but I commend them to you. Go and look at them. <clears throat> but let God's Holy Spirit speak to you. And apply these house rules to you. The second one, love one another. We've seen that. The fourth one, be devoted to one another. Hmm, That's a little strong, a different little wrinkle on it. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another. Counsel one another. Number 14, care for one another. 15, serve one another. 16, carry one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Do you have any forgiveness problems going on? This is a command. This is what we're to be about. This is part of... What John Loftus is, I think, well-called house rules for God's family. Bear with one another. 22, encourage one another. Build up one another. Spur one another on. Offer hospitality to one another. 29, pray for one another. If you were here for prayer time, you heard uh, Phil pray for a need that we have in our body this morning. AJ and Darlene have a newborn grandchild who is, by all natural means, not expected to live. David and Leslie's baby weighs, as I understand it, two to two and a half pounds. It was born with a syndrome. His esophagus is not connected to her stomach. 
heart is on the wrong side of her chest. Not expected to live, but she's alive. She wasn't expected to be born alive. We need to pray for that need. Phil cried out to the Lord in our prayer time. We need to be crying out for that. We've seen great examples of God's answer to such prayer. We need to, in faith, lift A.J. and Darlene and David and Leslie up to the Lord. Pray for one another. God's house rules for God's family. That was just verse 1, and obviously we could dig even deeper, far deeper than I have, to illustrate what God had in mind for His people. To love in a way that would provide that light on a hill. That lighthouse for the gospel. I'm going to get ahead of my notes. I just can't resist. As I was thinking about this, I don't know why my mind went here. I saw it. I heard it. I think it was a news story or something about the incredible stuff that's going on with LEDs. You know what LED is? It's a light-emitting diode. And as I understand it, I mean, you, you see them in televisions now. You see them, all your traffic lights. Most of your traffic lights are LEDs. And LEDs are all over the place. But they're developing more and more powerful LEDs so that searchlights and huge beacons of light are being created. I don't know if I'm dreaming this, but I think I've heard about one that they were thinking about putting on the moon that would have some effect that you could see all over the place. Light-emitting diodes. And I just thought about it, you know. What this text is telling me in this high-tech world is we are to be light-emitting diodes. And so I got ahead of myself, but I just wanted to share that with you. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Again, based on who God is and what he has done, illustrated by the examples of faith, And the warnings that have been given, the writer of Hebrews urges them and us to be hospitable and generous to total strangers. Job, who was righteous, could say in effect, in Job 31-32, that no stranger had to spend the night in the street because his door was always open to the traveler. Abraham, Gideon, and Manoah in the Old Testament had experiences of angelic visitors because of their hospitality. You can see that. Recorded in Genesis 18 and Judges 6 and Judges 13. This context in verse 2 of Hebrews 13 would indicate that these strangers were Christian strangers, visiting saints of God. This characteristic of generous, joy-filled hospitality speaks volumes to the world that we live in. We will only be open to what most in the world would consider the inconvenience of providing joy-filled, generous hospitality to strangers if God empowers us to do it. Because if it's going to be effective, it has to be in the Christ-like spirit of service. It is hospi- this is talking about hospitality performed only because, not just because we consider it, quote, our duty. In fact, it's, to be per- it's not to be performed begrudgingly or while complaining. I think if we engage in hospitality, of strangers in this manner, the effect will be to dim our part of that big light on a hill. 
Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, spoke of performance like that. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand that statement. Some have. There is nothing wrong at all with others seeing your righteousness, unless you do it for the purpose of being seen. Instead, we are to follow Paul's admonition to the, church, to the servants at Ephesus when he told them, in effect, uh, my translation, obey your bosses as you would obey Christ. Quote, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Ephesians 6. This kind of hospitality to strangers is rooted in radical, outrageous love that will point a big spotlight toward Christ, increasing his fame, giving him the glory he is due. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison or in bonds. I've added the or in bonds because I believe that's, as I studied the text, that's included here. And I think we might miss what it has to say to us if we just said in prison. Remember those who are in prison or in bonds as though in prison or in bonds with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This is really speaking about Christian relationships, by the way. Certainly, I'm not speaking against visiting people who are not believers in prison. I'm not speaking against that. But this text is really not talking about that. It's talking about visiting believers, Christians who are in prison or in bonds. So a third light-generating display of genuine Christianity that is radical and that can only be birthed out of the very heart of Christ is described here in verse 3. In context, again, this verse is speaking about those believers, those in the body, who are suffering in various physical or emotional bonds because of their circumstances. For those who received this letter, no doubt, it described men and women in prison because of their faith, because that was the Roman Empire and that was the time they lived in. And in some places in the world, that's what it says to them right now. It's taught, I mean, that's the primary message because they have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are in prison, for example, in China. But the scripture is not limited to that circumstance or circumstances that don't that those circumstances that we really don't face in our society. More is meant here than prison bars. In order to enter into these needs, I started off talking a little bit about this earlier, we need to be aware of them. And when we are unaware of these circumstances of bondage or mistreatment, it is for one of two reasons. Either we're not seeking to know the other believers in our sphere, or those who are hurting are hiding. Sometimes it's you who is hiding. Perhaps we are the one in bondage or suffering mistreatment, and we are not willing to be transparent enough to let it be made known. This urging of Scripture calls for us to provide both help and empathy. We, empathy meaning we have entered into that mistreatment or those bond, that bondage with them in the sense that we identify with it. We should be close enough to be, as the scripture says, to hurt when our brothers and sisters hurt, to be weeping when they're weeping. We should be close enough to them so that it has that impact, that effect on us. And we're urged here, 
really in passionate terms to minister to them out of an awareness that we, too, could be where they are had our circumstances been the same as theirs. That's the meaning of this text when it says, as though in bonds with them. As the church, we should be providing dimensions of love and care that non-Christians cannot possibly be capable of demonstrating. Capable of demonstrating. Be open, please. I want my heart to be open this morning to hear the Holy Spirit urging you and me to enter into the bondages and mistreatments of brothers and sisters in the Lord. And don't hide. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Wow. What an opportunity we have to demonstrate the glory of God in this arena. What an opportunity we have to stand out as bright examples of how radically different we are from the world. In fact, I, as I have in my mind's eye, some people here and some that I know of in this body who are radical examples of being different than the world in this arena. But we all need to be that kind of light in this world. I don't have time to fully develop this, but... We could say correctly that this admonition from the Holy Spirit calls both marrieds and singles to a life of chastity. And that's true. This passage does speak to that. And in doing that, we are a light in a world that's very dark in this arena. But it falls far short of what of the life we're called to by this passage. God calls us married and single, to a life that honors marriage. That means that we let marriage be seen, both for singles and those married, as something precious to be treasured. More than the most valuable things you can imagine. Just conjure up in your imagination those things that are the very most valuable things you can conceive of. We are to let marriage be honored in that way. Treasured more, more than the most valuable things. Let marriage be honored and let it be seen as bathed in this, in, in this light on the hill that we're to be. As the most revered and respected person you have in mind, including Christ himself. Since he is the bridegroom that our marriages are to point to. Our marriages ought to honor, be honored as for what they are. A picture of Christ and his church. I want to quote John Piper, his descriptives. He goes on, there's a sermon that I, that I have that he gave on this subject, and he went on and on. I'm just picking a little piece of it. But he says how we should honor marriage these are some of the descriptives in his message. Let it be esteemed and valued as something terribly costly, like the long black marble Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you've ever been there. I, I was surprised. I mean, I saw it on the news and whatever, but I hadn't been there. And I went there one time. I've been there several times. But I, when the first time I went there and I started walking down that wall. 
And I was overwhelmed. I, in fact, I don't, I've not talked to anyone who hasn't had that experience with awe and honor, name after name of men and women who gave their lives. It's an honor. That, that monument is an honorable, sanctified place. And that's what he's talking about. In other words, when you think of marriage, let yourself be gripped by emotions of tremendous respect and sanctity. In relation to marriage, cultivate the feeling that this not be touched quickly or handled casually or treated commonly. In God's eyes, marriage is precious. And therefore, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all. In order to be on God's page, and we could go off on talking about the attack on marriage in our society with uh, the idea of homosexual marriage and so-called homosexual marriage and, and all of those things. I won't go that direction, but in order to be on God's page about marriage, we're going to have to discard the world's ideas of marriage. The world's idea... and. <laughs> is that marriage is designed to make us happy. Right? I think most of us would say, oh, of course. I love the question that's posed by a book that uh, we've been studying by Gary Thomas. The subtitle of the book, Sacred Marriage. That subtitle is, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? By the way, when we approach it God's way, marriage will make us happy. But it will do so in ways that will accelerate our holiness and be far more satisfying than the world's notions of happiness. We're called to be out of step with the world in these matters of marriage. This is living that is full of light, the light of God's truth, full of salt, and that points the world to the, the light. We are to be that kind of light-emitting diode about the subject of marriage. That's what we're to be about. And this doesn't just apply to marriage. This applies to singles. You are to think of and it, the way you conceive of marriage. Don't young men, young women say, oh, I, don't need to, I don't want to get married. I just, I'm, too, I'm too satisfied where I am. If God has called you to marriage... You need to pursue it. And if God hasn't called you to marriage, be serious about that. But this is something that is to be treasured. And the way you think about marriage, the way you cultivate your thought life about marriage is important. We're to honor marriage. And when we do, and when our conversation in the world is seasoned with that salt, it will make us a light-emitting diode to a world that has it totally wrong. Totally wrong. And I don't think sometimes it is so subtle, the messages we get from all kinds of sources that detract from this. There is no television program that even touches on the subject without dishonoring marriage. None of them. If you take the world's views of marriage, you have a totally warped, 180 degrees out from what God intends. Verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man 
do to me. Again, what a radical way to live is described here and commanded here, by the way. The genuine Christian life is a contented, greed-free life. I have not, for each of the other life-giving life characteristics that are urged by our text, provided the promises that go with it. But there are promises that go with each of these commands found throughout the Word. And these promises in verse 6 actually apply to this entire passage in many other areas of the Christian life. I will... This one has the promise built right in, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Now, this was written to a society in which man could do a lot to you. A lot. And many of them were suffering with that lot in life. I, will, I must go back to the news I gave at the beginning to illustrate that I believe... Most all of this body of believers are living this command out in a way that will provide thousands of watts of light to the lighthouse for the gospel. Not just to permit the building of a building. Because the generosity that is exhibited by what I announced at the beginning of the service that has taken place in the last three weeks, it's about a, yeah, it, it will provide funds for a building. That's not what that's not the main thing it shows off. The main thing it shows off is a life that meets this admonition. Keep your life free from love of money. That's the main thing it exhibits. Many, if not all here, are living with that admonition in mind. And that's far that's a far more important beacon of light than any building we might build. If you live your life that way and you are seen as living your life that way in this community at this time. That's a light that can't be put out, that no bushel could cover. A light on a hill. Examples of living out the Christian life in a radical way. Of course, the Word of God is filled with warnings against loving money. I've, spoke, I've talked about the positive side of it, but there is another side of it. Loving money easily becomes a substitute for faith in God's loving provision and care. And it tempts us to put our trust in an unreliable supplier. Ourselves, our bosses, our employers, whoever. We're tempted to put our trust there for our provision. Don't fall for that temptation. Paul urged Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 to teach and urge these things. He says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This love of money that becomes our goal and our idol is so defeating. It doesn't even work out to the purpose it was intended for us as believers. Because when we set up idols in our lives as believers, God has a way, described in chapter 12 of Hebrews, of dealing with us about that. And one of the ways is that those pockets that we have been stuffing full develop holes 
And it just runs out. And it's wasted. But I thank God that here we have seen great examples of people who have kept their life free from love of money. And the promise goes with it. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you'll do this, God is saying, I'm going to provide. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. We saw it when he was speaking to his disciples. He said, you see the lilies of the field, how beautiful they are, how well clothed they are. They don't worry about the birds. They don't worry about where they're getting their food. He urged us to live that way. Seek first my kingdom, he says. All these things will be added. Put me in the right place. Keep your life free from love of money. And that, the, the easiest way to do that is to be generous. I mean, if you practice generosity, if you practice giving time, resources, talents, money, if you practice that, you're not going to have to worry about this admonition. It'll fall into place. These five admonitions, these commands in the first six verses of Hebrews 13 are a call for God's church, the bride of Christ, to simply be a radical, free, loving, countercultural group of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I want to revisit the question that we started with. Where can I, as part of this local church, best satisfy these demands of Scripture? Have you answered that question? Let me suggest an answer and then provide you with why I believe it is the answer to the question. The answer is in a covenant group. How many of you figured out this is where I was headed? A couple. In the limited time I have left, I want to do my best to demonstrate why that answer for this church is the correct answer. Let me begin, as lawyers like to do, with another question. How can we have faith to love each other as brothers and sisters? How can we have faith to show hospitality to strangers? How can we have faith to care for those who are in bondage? How can we have the faith that will cause us, out in the marketplace that we live in, to honor marriage as we should? How can we develop the faith and learn the faith to gain freedom from loving money? In shorter words, how can we learn to live a lifestyle of covenant-keeping, supernatural love? Well, the answer is really in the title to this series of messages. It's an easy answer. It's a one-word answer to that question. Faith. And I think most of us have learned where our faith comes from. Faith comes from hearing the word. Of course we need faith. Faith that is built on who God is and what God has done based on all of his promises And that's one of the reasons why we need to be faithful in this word. So we will keep them in mind and remember them, all of his promises. There's a verse in an old gospel song that very few of you will remember. And I was, uh, the, the name of the song is Standing on the Promises. How many remember that song? Oh, it's quite good. It's a good number. This verse in that old gospel song 
was standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail by the living word of God, I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. Wonderful truth in that song. The song, uh, the words are true, but the awful truth of experience and the, the word especially, especially all those one another words in the word, that you see listed on the house rules for God's family. The truth of experience and the truth that is demonstrated in the word tell us that the howling storms sometimes knock us off of the promises of God. The experience tells us that the pleasures of this world lure us off of the promises of God. Satan himself tempts us off of the promises of God. The anxieties and the pressures of life wear us out so that we neglect the promises of God. What are we to do about that awful truth of experience? Hebrews itself, uh, amazing wealth of material in Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 12, 13 provides a very strong clue. I think I put the scripture in your notes. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Believing the promises of God is the key to holiness and love and victory over sin. But we need one another in our lives to exhort one another every day. We're not islands. We need one another. God ordained the local church for that purpose. To encourage one another every day. And the means of that grace at Lakeview Christian Center is the small groups we have called covenant groups. And if this was not clear in Hebrews 3, then consider Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For example, one could correctly say, that the way we can get free from the love of money is to really study and trust the promise of God to those who live this way. There are many promises in God, of, of God that speak to this. And we could study and we should study and trust the word. And we could correctly say that the way we learn to love one another as we should is to read and trust the promises of God that apply to those who love one another. And the way we... Uh, We can lovingly show hospitality to strangers. We can learn from promises about that in the word, that this is what we should do and trust those promises. And we could do that. And the way we take on the burdens of those in bondage is the same works the same way. We can find in the word admonition and promises that relate to doing that, that will encourage us and will will build faith in us. The way we can. Learn to shun fornication and adultery is to read the word and trust the promises and the warnings that apply to 
that God applies to those who don't follow that admonition or the promises that benefit those who do. Doing these things God's way. God will never leave us, and he will always be there for us, no matter what this lifestyle of covenant-keeping love costs us. That is true. Those things build faith. But something would be missing from this simple strategy of becoming like Christ if that's all we do. And what's missing is a small group of people, the one another's, who you become close enough to, and the, who, let me say, say, try to say this correctly or say it in a way that will communicate what God has on my heart. What's missing from this strategy of simply looking at the promises of God, staying in the promises of God, and trusting the promises of God all in your isolated little island is that all of those howling storms of doubt and fear that will assail us will come. And what's missing is a small group of people, the one and others, who you become close enough to, who will keep you connected to the promises of God and the power of God. The glue, if you will. And you should be the same glue for them as they are for you. We are the glue to connect each other to God's promises. You well know, if you've been at this Christian walk very long, that we are constantly tempted not to see the preciousness of the promises of God. I mean, uh, uh, I, I was trying to remember that this is a song we sing uh, here, and Matt loves it. He, it's interesting to hear him talk about it, because he used to hate this hymn, and now he loves it. And I don't remember the name of it. I meant to ask someone who would remember the name. I know most of the verses. I could sing it for you. I won't do that. I won't. Do that to you, but one of the pass one of the verses in it says, "Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love." One of God's primary means of grace to seal our hearts continually for His courts above that that song sings about is one another. I look out and I see people who have been that to me. Covenant groups, working as God wants them to work, provide the one another factor where we remind each other and encourage each other about the truth of God's promises when we're tempted to disbelieve them because of circumstances. I hear example after example. I heard them this week. I was blessed so much because the Lord had this on my mind. I heard testimonies of this one, this one or this two people going to visit another or this person going to pray with one another. Those testimonies were filtering into me, being the glue that connect, connects us together to remember God's promises. What our text talks about is the stuff of covenant group life. Money, sex, care for the hurting, love of strangers, the front line of church life, the issues we face. The pastors would be the first ones to tell you they cannot possibly be all the spiritual influence that you need in your life. 
They're called, they are called to equip us all to function in small groups that love each other the way verse 1 says and to be the ones who are there to fight the fight of faith in very practical and everyday ways. To choose for someone in this body. And I hope you, I hope you hear this. This is a heart of love saying this. But if you choose not to be active in covenant groups, you're making a choice to be a step removed from the ordinary, sanctifying, maturing, and caregiving design of this church. Covenant groups meet to worship God together, to pray for one another, to live out the admonitions that are found in those 30 house rules for God's family. Our metropolitan area needs to see Christians loving each other like this. What a powerful beacon of light could emit from six to eight hundred people living like this in this city. And I've heard the excuses. Don't allow the weaknesses that are always evident in groups of people or even the weaknesses of covenant group leaders like me. Rob us of the delight that it brings to the heart of God to see people fighting the good fight of faith by submitting to each other, even in their weaknesses, by encouraging each other to continue to serve, to live lives of giving and loving as Christ did. This is possible by the strength God will give us as we encourage one another to trust the promises of God. The house rules I gave you in in your notes, again, as I said, it comes from a chapter in a book that some of you, maybe many of you, have read before. And If you haven't read it before, you need to get it, pick it up, read it. If you have read it, get it off the shelf, read it again. Why Small Groups is the name of the book. Dave Harvey, a gifted pastor in Philadelphia, wrote the last chapter of that book. And I want to close by sharing with you a couple of quotes from that chapter I couldn't possibly improve upon. He writes, God does not call us out from this corrupt generation so that so we can meander aimlessly over the Christian landscape. A meeting here, a teaching there, some occasional small group involvement just for variety. We have been called out to be added in. All believers should be committed to a local church that cares for their souls, equips them for ministry, and benefits from their service. Church can't be a mere accessory. We must be added. I like Eugene Peterson's translation of the passage we read in Acts, and I'm going to step on some toes here, but I'm I'm doing it on purpose, so just take it. (laughs) That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. That's Eugene Peterson's uh, translation of this passage in in Acts 2.41. Signing up is a great way to describe being added. And being, particularly if it bothers you to be signed up. If that bothers you, deal with it. Because it means, the reason it bothers you is because you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm... This is what's really going on. I don't know if I really want to be that committed. I'm sorry if I've been unkind, but... Dave Harvey goes on to say, Being added is absolutely vital, vital, but it's only a start. According to Acts 2, God wants to move each of his children beyond addition to devotion. 
So let God speak to you about any sense you may be tempted to have that too much is expected. God never expects too much. He expects all. He expects all of our heart. And when we commit to him all of our heart, all the rest falls into place. And we should never fear that he would demand that we put our lives into imbalance. I've heard that term used. He wants the perfect balance that devotion to his cause will create, that will develop us into those light-emitting diodes that will together make up a beacon on a hill, a lighthouse for the gospel. One last quote, same chapter, provoked in, in the book Why Small Groups by a statement made by Dr. Martin Luther King, who in a message where he was describing his hopes for life and death, he, this is just one line from something he said. I just want to leave a committed life behind. Dave Harvey wrote this in response to that. Love your church. Lay down your life for your church. Pour out your passions and energies to accomplish God's plan for the church. Your small group, your covenant group, has enormous potential. Harness it for the benefit of your church. For this is where God has called you. This is where he is changing you. This is where he wants you to leave a committed life behind. As I prepared for this morning, again, I, as I told you earlier, I had a mental picture of a huge LED beacon. I don't know that much about LEDs, but I do know it means light-emitting diode. And I, I read somewhere, as I said, that huge beacons of light are being created using millions of these LEDs. And I caught a picture in my mind of each person in this church being, as it were, an LED, contributing to the huge beacon of light that would illuminate the cross of Christ and his gospel that would be used to draw this entire metropolitan area to him, the giver of light and life. I believe our light output will increase as we are increasingly committed to one another. I've only scratched the surface of, this, of the specific applications of this passage that are available. But I believe that God is speaking to you as he has me in many ways that we never dreamed he would as we began this morning. I trust him for that. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And just obey. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for too often living such a shallow life. It fails to be the part of a light on a hill that you want to make of this church. Lord, thank you that by your Holy Spirit you challenge us. Thank you for the fruit we have seen in the generosity of your people that has come from this challenge to be about one another. Many who have given as it moved Keith to tell us about a small group of people in 1960s who no doubt stretched their budgets beyond their imagination to build a little building in Lakeview that
over the years has produced fruit for your kingdom. Lord, you have now moved on this group of people in a similar way. And for that, we give you the glory. It's your name that we praise. You are the one who has provided faith. But Lord, may we not begin to think that it begins and ends with a building. It does not. The building is just a place where we can gather together to create a light that cannot be extinguished. A light that is created by the light you have dropped into our lives. Lord, may we simply be reflectors of that light. Challenge each one of us in the ways we need to be challenged, Holy Spirit, to be about what you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.